Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science. Again, my name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking with John Campbell, who is the co-author with Uva Peterson of The National Origins of Policy Ideas, Knowledge Regimes in the United States, France, Germany, and Denmark, published by Princeton University Press. John Campbell, how are you doing today? I'm very good. How are you? I'm doing great, and I, uh, as we've uh, talked about and emailed a little bit about, this is a book that uh, I really enjoyed because it's in an area of research that I do. Um, so I know a little bit about you, but before we get to your book, maybe you can tell us just a little bit about yourself and about your co-author. Sure. Uh, I'm a professor of sociology at Dartmouth College. Uh, I'm also a professor of political economy at the Copenhagen Business School, uh, in the Department of Business and Politics, where my co-author, Uva Peterson, uh, is also a professor of comparative political economy. Yeah, and your your backgrounds, and uh, I can imagine uh, either coming together, has resulted in, in some of the, the, the framing of this book. How how did you two come together to, to work on this book? Is this the first collaboration or the first of uh, the, the, the one of many? Uh, tell us about sort of the the origins of the book. Well, Uwe and I have been working together on projects for almost 20 years now. Um, and this, in a sense, is a culmination of things we've been talking about for a while. It started, actually, um, in a conversation that he and I had uh, when we were taking a stroll near his home in Denmark several years ago. And we decided that we would write a short little paper on ideas and politics. And... Um, to be blunt, it got a little bit out of hand, and so we ended up writing a book instead. Yeah, some great books are, are start just as uh, some uh, an idea for a paper, and uh, the, the, those good papers turn into really interesting books. Uh, as I mentioned, I, I enjoyed the book a lot. Let's let's talk about some some abstract notions because I, I think you know over the last couple of years we've had a couple of people on to talk about policy ideas and where they come from. Um, there's been a lot of interest in where the ideas of neoliberalism, for instance, come from. Uh, so let's let's talk about how you conceptualize this at the start of the book. So in theory, where do policy ideas come from in democratic countries? Well, first we need to make a distinction between the ideas that actually affect policymakers in the policymaking process and the origins of policy ideas full stop, because clearly it's not the case that all policy ideas that get floated actually have an impact. Uh, we discussed that a little bit in the book. Um, but our interest is basically trying to find out as much as we can in a comparative cross-national context about where policy ideas of all sorts come from. And by that, we mean uh, policy recommendations uh, and the data analysis uh, and thinking that lies behind them. So we take a fairly broad view of policy ideas. Um, there is a huge literature over the last 15 years, 20 years or so in political science about, quote, ideas and politics, as I think you know. And it's very much pitched at trying to explain the conditions under which ideas, as opposed to material interests or the pursuit of rational interests, 
impacts the policy process. And that's fine, and we accept the fact uh, from the outset that policy ideas sometimes do have big impacts. But as you said before, we want to find out where these ideas are coming from in the first place and to do it in a comparative context. So that's the, that's the starting point um, for the project. Yeah, and, and that is really one of the differences between these, uh, this book and, and some others. Um, the idea of, of where policy ideas come from has been studying very much on a nation-by-nation nation basis, but, but you do this in a cross-national way. I wonder if you talk a little bit of how you chose the four countries in, in your study. What, what makes these four interesting? Uh, well, there are personal reasons, and there are also uh, more scholarly reasons. Uva is a Dane. I'm an American, so there are two cases right there. Uh, very different countries in the sense that the United States is typically cast as a so-called liberal market economy with a relatively weak state. Denmark, uh, in a sense, is the, the paradigmatic opposite. It's a much more coordinated market economy with a stronger state. Denmark's also small. The United States is a big hegemonic power, and we think that uh, may have important differences in terms of how, how policy ideas are generated. The other two countries, France and Germany, uh, we picked those because France is uh, an extremely strong state historically, uh, sometimes described as a statist political economy. Germany is the prototypical corporatist political economy. Um, so we wanted some variation, case-based variation across these countries. So we have a liberal American economy, statist France, uh, corporatist Germany, and uh, an extremely coordinated, some would call it a negotiated economy in the Danish case. Uh, so three big ones and a little one as well. No, I think a lot of, of people in our audience will know the, the U.S. system somewhat well. It's, it's sort of noted by the number of um, private research organizations mm -hmm. and increasingly competitive and political politicized arena. But I think these other countries um, would be quite new. They're quite, somewhat new to me. France in particular drew my attention. I wonder if you'd describe a little bit about the system in France and, and um, some of the nooks and crannies, which, which I thought were interesting. I, I was also interested just how, you know, so how you came upon some of this real detailed information, the types of interviews, where the interviews were, were done, and, mm -hmm. and also how, how this has changed over time in France. Yeah, well, that's, that's a lot of questions right there. Um, but in a nutshell, France is the statist economy, and historically, uh, the, the, what we call the knowledge regime, that is the set of policy research organizations uh, and the institutions that govern their activities. Um, it's a statist, state-dominated uh, knowledge regime. So historically, within the state apparatus at the national level, it's a very centralized system in France, of course, uh, you had all the major policy research organizations. Um, very centralized. They had all the data. They had all the analytic expertise. They were close to power. They made all the policy recommendations, for better or worse. Um, over time, things have changed somewhat, although in a very statist character. Uh, what we try to do in the book is examine how each of these four national knowledge regimes has changed in response to the end of the golden age of post-war um, 20th century capitalism. That is, the onset of stagflation, rise of globalization, and all the attendant problems and challenges go along with that. And in the French case, what happened was, after a while, 
sort of um, late 1970s or so, uh, French policymakers, particularly in the prime minister's office, began to realize that the conventional thinking from their policy research organizations, which was very Keynesian, uh, was no longer providing them with the information, the analysis, the advice that they thought that they needed uh, for France to do well in an increasingly global economy. And so what they did was they started to spend money to facilitate and encourage uh, what we would call semi-public policy research organizations to develop somewhat outside the purview of the state but still funded with, with state money. And the idea there explicitly was to try and generate some fresh thinking, some new ideas uh, that might kind of reinvigorate the policy discourse uh, and put French, uh, the French political economy in um, a more competitive position internationally. Now, I should say, in response to your other question about the nature of the, the data that we used here very quickly, um, we spent a lot of time in all four countries interviewing people usually presidents, chief operating officers, senior uh, research scientists in, I think we talked to people in about 75 different policy research organizations over a span of about a year and a half or two years. So a lot of interview data um, was brought to bear on this project, as well as annual reports and policy documents from all the different organizations that we spoke with. It was a, a very labor-intensive process. Yeah, and, and let's also make clear that, that your focus very much was in the economics realm. That's right. um, I know many of these organizations, many of these different types of organizations work on different issues, but you were very much focused on, on economics. Now, given these changes in the French system, um, how does that affect the sort of the, how policy ideas permeate into the policymaking process, particularly compared to Germany and Denmark that have these other systems in place? Well, it's interesting. Um, this gets to the question of influence, which is one that we did not initially set out to study, but kept coming back at us as we would talk about this to other people. Um, people would say, what's the influence here? How does that work? And in the French case, um, the influence is pretty straightforward, uh, particularly insofar as the prime minister's office is concerned. Uh, Prime Minister's office in 1997 set up um, what is tantamount to the Council of Economic Advisors in the United States um, to advise it, uh, set up some other policy research organizations to do much the same thing. So it was a fairly straight-ahead, direct channel of access that was that was constructed there. In the German case, corporatist Germany, a uh, very different kind of a process where the Ministry of Economics and Technology for example, organizes uh, a joint economic report process. This joint economic report is put together by a select group of elite uh, and very academically oriented policy research organizations. Uh, these organizations have to compete to be essentially hired into the, the joint economic policy process. And twice a year, this group of four, five, or six organizations has to come together and meet and do two things. It has to come up with a consensus analysis of where the German economy is going in the next six months or a year or so. And secondly, they have to come up with a consensus set of policy recommendations, 
which are both then transmitted to the ministry and then go into the, the decision-making process to some extent or the other. Um, so it's a very consensus-oriented kind of process with, in, in effect, semi-public, independent organizations outside the state doing the, the heavy lifting on this. The Danish case is a little bit different. Denmark is a little bit of a hybrid. It's a little bit German. It's a little bit French. Um, you have a tremendous amount. And remember, this is a small country where everybody knows everybody. All the action uh, is in Copenhagen. Whereas in the German case, we visited, I think, six or seven different cities because it's spread out all over the place as a result of the federalist structure of the German state. But in the Danish case, you have a, a, a sort of super consensus-oriented process, a negotiated process, uh, where, for example, um, the Danish Economic Council, which is equivalent to our Council of Economic Advisors, is a, a group of representatives from the labor unions, the business associations, uh, environmental groups, uh, and is run and orchestrated by a group of five, excuse me, four economists referred to as the wise men, although there's a woman on the council now. And they produce reports uh, annually, sometimes biannually, uh, about all facets of the Danish economy. Uh, this is then sent up the line uh, to the ministries. Uh, parliamentarians have a look at it. Uh, but it's a process where all the social actors, all the social partners, sit at the table uh, and have input and discussion. So these are very different kinds of processes that we see across these four different countries in terms of how they at least try to influence the policymaking process. And in the book, there's there's numerous details and, and aspects of this that we're not even touching on. But but your book is more than just these case studies, country case studies. In the second part of the book, you, you put these cases together um, in a couple of interesting ways. I mean, so in general, are these countries coming together in their approach, or are the cross-national patterns becoming more ingrained and, and, and um, entrenching very different systems? What are we seeing here? Well, we see a bit of both, to be perfectly honest. Um, and this, these are one of the uh, two questions that guided the research um, when we went into it. To what extent are we seeing convergence in terms of how policy ideas are produced and disseminated to policymakers? Are we seeing convergence within as well as across these national cases or not? And essentially what we find is that in some respects, there's a certain amount of convergence that goes on. For example, in terms of methods of economic analysis, perhaps not surprising, uh, all most of these uh, research organizations across the four countries are more inclined now to work with big data sets, uh, more sophisticated econometric methodologies, uh, increasingly inclined to do more cross-national kinds of research. Uh, so there's been a certain amount of convergence on analytic technique. There's also been a certain amount of convergence in terms of how these organizations go about trying to disseminate this information to policymakers in such a way that it'll have some kind of an impact on the policymaking process. They've shifted, for example, to writing very short policy briefs, um, they've tried to direct more attention to reaching out to the media, recognizing that 
politicians pay attention to the media, and if the media picks up on something, politicians are more likely to sit up and, and, and take note. Um, so there's been some convergence in that regard, both within and across countries. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there's still a lot of national specificity to what these foreign knowledge regimes look like in terms of their structure in particular and, and how they operate. Um, the United States still tends to have a lot of privately funded uh, policy research organizations that are very competitive and to an increasing extent, for better or worse, uh, rather adversarial in the tactics that they pursue. Um, the Germans continue to have a corporatist kind of a model. The Danes have a negotiated model. The French have a status model and so forth. And the reason why there hasn't been a full-blown convergence is because there are important institutional uh, and political as well as resource constraints on how much change, what kind of change is possible within these different national contexts. I wonder how much we can generalize from these these cases. Um, I wonder if you can comment. It's not really the, the heart of the book, but I wonder if you can comment a little bit about whether there is convergence in, in other democ uh, democracies, uh, in India or Brazil or, or Korea. How much global convergence is there in, in knowledge regimes in, in other countries that may be more different um, than the ones that you study? It's a great question, and I unfortunately don't have an answer for you on this. Um, you know, we tried to, to to stick pretty close to the data and the cases that we had at hand. There was enough variation there um, uh, for us to work with. Um, I do think that, um, and I hope very much that somebody will take this up and try to compare to some of the uh, post-communist countries. Uh, Chinese case is absolutely fascinating, I suspect. Um, and let's not forget as well that some kind of knowledge regime is beginning, I think, to form at the transnational level. So, for example, some of the organizations that we talked to uh, during our interviews had either established or started to think about establishing offices in Brussels at the EU level. So it's entirely possible that if we came back and, um, uh, you know, did a comparable study in another five or ten years or so, there would be some some pretty important lessons to be gleaned from looking at the transnational level, particularly the EU, but I suspect as well uh, maybe the ASEAN uh, and Mercosur and some of the other regional political economies around the world. Yeah, I, I can't think of a better way to, to end our conversation than a, than a call for some interesting future research to extend uh, the, some of the findings and conclusions you reach in, in your book. Uh, the book, again, is The National Origins of Policy Ideas, Knowledge Regimes in the United States, France, Germany, and Denmark, published and available through uh, Princeton University Press. John, thank you very much for your time today. Keith, it was a pleasure. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. <laughs>